This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Susan Youngworth, Jen B., and Ashley Schiffer. Thank you all so, so much for being supporters of this show. I truly appreciate it. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So, if Sleepy has maybe helped you get a better night's rest and uh, wake up more refreshed the next day, consider going to Patreon.com and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And at $5 a month, you get access to over 50 extra poetry episodes that are not on the regular podcast feed, which you would love. They're very, very rhythmic and nice. And uh, But no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show. 
after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I have a reading for you that I really enjoyed. It is The Celestial City by Baroness Orxy. This is a kind of old-timey British crime novel um, about a lady detective, and uh, the writing is fantastic. She is also the author of The Scarlet Pimpernel, which I know a lot of you really liked. And the dialogue is really fantastic in the beginning. It's kind of the dialogue between a bunch of um, thieves and uh, fun criminals talking about a heist that they did. And yeah, it's very, very fresh prose and dialogue. Really natural. Probably really great to fall asleep to. And usually I start at chapter one for a lot of these books, but the prologue was super interesting, so that is what we're starting with tonight. So, I hope you are all enjoying the beginning of the fall season and looking forward to sweater weather. Um, I'll be reading you some more folly books in the next couple months especially when it comes to Spooky October, which I know a lot of you are looking forward to. Well, anyways, that's enough of me yapping. Tonight, The Celestial City, by the Baroness Orxy. And now's the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed get real comfortable close your eyes and let me read to you Links in the Chain 1. It was very cold and very wet. A thin drizzle that was neither rain nor snow, but that partook of the unpleasant qualities of bow, defied every overcoat and the stoutest of boots, penetrated to the marrow of every bone, and, incidentally, blurred the ugly outlines of the houses in Shaston Street as well as the tall, grim stone walls against which the man leaned in the intervals of tramping up and down to keep himself warm. Now and again, a passerby spoke to him. Hello, Bill. And he, chawing the end of an excellent cigar, would murmur a surly, Hello, in reply. 
an excellent cigar and an expensive one, although he, the man, wore a coat over which age had thrown a greenish hue, trousers that had not seen a tailor's goose for years, a woolen scarf that hid the absence of a collar, and a battered bowler that would have shamed a street musician. He had been waiting here for over an hour, sometimes tramping up and down, sometimes leaning against the wall, ever since eight o'clock. She had let him know that it would be eight o'clock, but it was past nine now. The shops in Shaston Street were taking down their shutters, preparing for the business of the day. Through the foray mist, one or two lights blinked like lazy eyes just wakened from sleep. Those that hailed the man as they passed did not stop to make conversation, though one of them did supplement the hello bell with a sympathetic query. Been here for long? To which the man vouchsafed no reply. It was pretty obvious that he had been here long for his comb the one-time velvet collar of which he was turned up to his ears, was covered all over with moisture that glistened in the gray morning light like myriads of minute strass. It was nearly half-past nine before the big wooden doors swung open. The two bobbies at the end of the gate did no more than glance up and hoist their massive chest by inserting their thumbs more firmly in their belts. From where the man stood, he couldn't see the gates, nor could he hear the heavy doors swinging on their well-oiled hinges. But some mysterious instinct warned him that they were now open and that she would come in a minute or two. He threw away the stump of his cigar, and turned back the collar of his coat. He even set his battered hat at a more jaunty angle, and finally passed his hand meditatively over his shaggy beard. The next moment she came out, dressed as he had last seen her, in her neat navy blue coat and skirt, the thin stockings and patent shoes, and the smart little hat that made her looked just like a lady. She carried the small suitcase, which he had given her the day she got engaged to Jim. The two bobbies hardly looked at her. Silly fools. Not often did they see such a pretty sight as she presented, even now. Turning out of the gate, she stopped on the pavement, and looked to right and left. Presently, she saw the man through the mist and the rain and the cold, and just for a second, her little face lit up. It had been so very sullen, so rebellious before, and sure enough, the light faded out of it again in a moment and left it frowning with drooping mouth and lips set tightly together. Hello, kid, the man said with a vague attempt at cheerfulness. 
Hello, Father, she gave answer, and then added with the ghost of a smile. I did not know you with that beard. No, he rejoined simply. Silently they walked on, side by side, leaving those awful walls towering behind them. Just as the girl stepped off the pavement before crossing Manthorpe Place, she turned and gave them a last look. An imperceptible shudder went through her slim body. Don't look at him, kid, the man said quietly. It's all over now, and we'll forget all about him. She gave a dry little laugh. Easy for you, she murmured. I forget all about him. We'll go to London or somewhere, the man went on with a vague gesture of his lean brown hand. There's plenty of money now, you know, quite safe. They didn't speak for some time after that, just walked on, she carrying her suitcase and he walking with hands in the pockets of his overcoat not offering to carry the case for her, though, though it was obviously heavy and awkward, but nevertheless very attentive and watchful over her at the crossings. When they came to the bridge, she exclaimed, Hello, don't we pay our penny to go over the bridge? No, the man replied. They took off the toll last year. You didn't know, did you? No, she replied. I didn't know. And you remember Reeson's flour mill? He's had to shift his works outside the city boundary. The smoke of his chimneys was rotting some of the stonework of the minister. He fought the corporation over it, tooth and nail. But he had to go. People say it's cost him a mint of money. But my belief is that he got compensation and didn't lose a penny by the transaction. He went on in the same strain for some time. But obviously, the girl was not listening. Her thoughts were elsewhere. And he, equally obviously, was only talking for the sake of bridging over those awkward moments the first they had spent alone together since goodness knows when. She had paused on the bridge and was gazing, silent and absorbed, on an old familiar picture. The gray, sluggish river, the city walls, the dull red brick buildings of St. Peter's schools, half veiled in the drooping branches of secular willows and farther on the towers of the minister, encased in a network of scaffolding, set up to protect them against the depredations of modern commercialism. Much about the same, ain't it, Kat? She turned away from the contemplation of the old city and replied with a sigh. Yes, much about the same. Five minutes later, they were over the bridge in the unfashionable quarter of Yeominster. 
row upon row of pale, dim-colored brickwork, broken at regular intervals by flights of stone steps leading to the front doors and flanked by lines of painted iron railings, represented the contributions made by 19th century architecture towards the aggrandizement of the medieval city. Here we are, the man said with an obvious sigh of relief as he came to halt outside one of these ugly structures and, taking the five stone steps at a bound, he fumbled for his latchkey and soon had the front door invitingly open. He entered the house, closely followed by the girl. When the door fell to behind them, the narrow hall and passage were pitch dark. Ahead, the steep staircase, partly covered by tattered oilcloth, showed vaguely in the dim light that she came slanting from a window above. From one of the upper floors came a confused sound made up of intermittent swearing, an occasional fretful appeal, some shuffling and banging, and the monotonous cry of a child. We haven't been able to get rid of those people on the third floor yet, the man remarked curtly. Such a nuisance they are. Their brat is always sick. The girl followed him along the passage and down the stairs that led to the basement. From below, too, came a vague murmur of voices, and presently the man threw open a door. A loud hello, uttered by half a dozen lusty throats, greeted the arrival of the pair. The girl blinked her eyes trying to pierce the haze of tobacco smoke that hung like a curtain between her and the number of hands stretched out to greet her. A chair was pushed forward for her. She sat down, half dazed by the heat of the atmosphere, the rough greetings, the familiar sounds and smells of the old place. A soft color crept into her wan cheeks, and a glimmer of excitement came into her eyes. Bless my soul, said one man. I do believe she's grown. This made her laugh. She took off her hat with a quick gesture that had something of defiance in it, and her small head appeared with its crop of golden hair cut so close that for a moment she seemed in her neat tailor-made more like a boy than a girl. Her father gave a curt laugh. It's all the fashion in London now, he said, for ladies to cut their hair, ain't it, mates? It'll soon grow, someone remarked sententiously. Further discussion on the subject was interrupted by the entrance of a very large, slatterny-looking woman carrying a tray of tea things, which she set upon the table in the middle of the room. She showed neither surprise nor pleasure at seeing the girl, who gave a curt, Hello, Mrs. Mason, as she put the tray down. I've made you a bit of toast, the woman remarked dryly 
and I thought you can eat an egg. After which she waddled out of the room. Youth and health asserted themselves then and there. The arrival of Mrs. Mason, the tea tray, the hot butter toast and fresh egg acted like a thaw in the girl's frozen senses. She fell too with relish and vigor, all the men watching her eat as if the sight of her enjoying her tea was the one sight they had been longing for. At one moment she looked up and caught her father's eyes fixed upon her. Glad to be back, he asked somewhat wistfully as he came round to her and stood close to her chair. She didn't reply in so many words, but with a graceful, kittenish movement, she leaned over and pressed her cheek against his coat sleeve, whilst a soft look stole into her eyes. Sentiment being apparently a reprehensible display in social intercourse, several men at once cleared their throats, expectorated on the dusty floor, wiped their mouths with the backs of their hands, and gave sundry other signs of complete indifference. Then, one of them suddenly remarked, You did know the war is over, didn't you, kid? She nodded. Yes, we knew that, she said. Someone sent a lot of oranges to celebrate the occasion, but there was suet pudding one day. November, wasn't it? They all nodded in reply, and after a pause she went on. All the boys come home yet? Most of them, someone said. And then suddenly, they were all silent. One or two inquiring glances were shot at Bill, who mutely shook his head. Once more there was universal clearing of throats, and presently a call for Mrs. Mason. The girl had been silent for a minute or two, and then she said quietly, all at once, You needn't tell me, I know. They understood and said nothing, and after another second she added, He was killed. Her father nodded. A week before the armistice, he said, one or two of the others also nodded their heads in a sage manner and said slowly, Yes, a week before the armistice. That's when it was. With this, the incident was closed. The girl went on sipping her tea. The men started a discussion on the subject of some new police regulations that seemed greatly to excite them, but did not interest her in the least. And presently, she felt an immense lassitude, a longing for her own comfy bed with the spring mattress and the light warm quilt. Her father caught her out yawning. Would you like to go upstairs, kid? He asked. Yes, I would, she replied. I feel as if I could sleep on and off for hours and hours. She rose and clung to his arm. So long, everybody, 
Bill said, giving his friends a comprehensive nod. See you tonight as usual. Same place. They all said so long, and at once resumed their discussion on the new police regulations, whilst Bill picked up the girl's suitcase and let her out of the room. Two. The evening meeting took place in a private room at the Bishop's Apron in Melsom Street. When Bill arrived, his friends were already there. Well, how's the kid? One of them asked as soon as Bill had thrown down his hat and joined them at the table. He was tall, with sandy hair, sprinkled with gray, clean-shaved crimson face, a snub nose, and very round, pale eyes. Pretty fair, Bill replied curtly. She seemed kind of quiet this morning, another man remarked. Before Bill spoke again, he poured himself out a mug full of ale from the huge jug that stood in the center of the table. Then, having carefully wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, he said it slowly. Well, what can you expect? We did do the dirty on her, didn't we? He couldn't be helped, the sandy-haired giant retorted. Any one of us, someone at him, would have got fourteen years. What's eighteen months to a kid her age? And you yourself, Bill. Bill brought down the palm of his hand with a bang on the table. I didn't say one way or the other, did I? Laddie said the kid seemed quiet. She was not likely to fall on her necks all at once, was she? After eighteen months, she's had. And Jim, gone without her seeing him again. Then one thing and another. Now was she? He went on and cast a kind of defiant glance all round at the familiar faces before him. I never thought she cared much about Jim, one man remarked. That's not the point, Bill retorted. Just part and parcel of the same thing. She'll get over it presently, of course, but just now feels a bit hipped, and that's all about it. There was silence for a moment or two after that, and then one man, who seemed different from the rest of the party by reason of his tously brown hair and beard, his narrow almond-shaped eyes, and parchment-colored skin that gave him a distinctly foreign look, leaned forward, his arms on the table, and addressed the company in general. What exactly happened about the girl, he asked. I never knew, really. At first, nobody seemed inclined to embark on the story. You tell him, Bill, someone suggested. Not me, Bill rejoined. I want bygones to be bygones. I'd much rather not talk about it anymore. But the others insisted. It's only fair Paul should know, one of them said. It best come from you, 
added another. And the one they called Paul clinched the matter with a persuasive, Come on, Bill. It was over that affair at Dean's store, close by here, the sandy-haired man remarked, by way of getting the ball rolling. Well, Bill broke in with a loud O, if Kilts is going to tell the story. No, no, Bill, you go on, was the universal comment in response. Well then, Bill resumed after a slight pause. It was over that business at Deansthorpe, as Kilt says. We thought we were safe, because the people were all abroad, and we didn't know that that swine of a caretaker was going to turn traitor. It wasn't him either. It was his wife. He told her, and she gave us away to the police. Anyway, we had come prepared for anything, you understand. The kid was with us, for she can climb like a cat, and there's no one like her for getting through a bit of an opening that you'd think couldn't accommodate a mouse. Jim was along too. They called themselves engaged since the march previous and we had posted him down in the street below to give us warning in case of trouble coming. He was to give one whistle for look out, two for get away quick, and three for run for your lives. Like a true raconteur, Bill paused in his story in order to lubricate his throat. No one spoke. No one interrupted. They all sat round, pulling away at their pipes or their cigars, for there was a box of choice Havanas upon the rough deal table and on a battered tin tray where there was a bottle of green chartreuse, evidently of the genuine, very expensive kind. We were up on the second floor. Bill went on after a while and we had got the whole of the swag out of the safe. I must tell you that we'd been at work over three hours then. We had the pearls and the rest of the jewelry, and a thousand or two in notes. And what's more, we got what we came for. All the letters from the German agent over in Holland, which went to prove that Simeon Goldstein was doing a grand trade in the matter of selling information to the Germans. We reckoned on touching him for at least a hundred thousand for those letters, and we did too, ultimately. Didn't we, mates? They all solemnly nodded assent. The one they called Paul sat listening with his almond-shaped eyes fixed upon the speaker whose every word evidently sank into his receptive brain. Laddie here put us up to the job about those letters, Bill resumed, and then added with a touch of grim humor. It was that information that gave him the entree into our exclusive circle. He's been one of us ever since, and it was the least we could do to admit him into a partnership just as we admitted you, Paul, for the information you gave us in the autumn. Laddie had been valet 
to old Goldstein and had found out about the letters. Then one day he had the good fortune to meet me. We became pals and there you are. Laddie is a rich man now, ain't you Laddie? Well, to resume, we'd got our swag comfortably tucked away when we heard Jim's whistle once, twice, three times. It meant fly for your lives. The kid, she's a wonderful girl, I tell you, peeps out of the window and sees the cops all down below. And whilst we all say, what's to be done? She has already got a plan ready in her head. Slip some of the goods into my pockets, Dad, she says to me. Just then, that fool, Spinks, the caretaker of the place, you understand, comes running in like a scared hen. You should have seen the kid as she turned on him. While Jim and me have a little conversation with the police, she says to him, do you see that dad and the others get away by the back door? If you don't, she says, or if they get caught, you are a dead man tomorrow. And he could see that she meant it too. I guessed, of course, what she meant to do. And so did the others, I say. And we did the dirty on her. That is, we let her get copped and saved ourselves. She just climbed out of the window and let herself down by the gutter and fell straight into the arms of half a dozen police who already had got Jim. She screamed and she fought like a little cat all in order to give us time to get away. She is a splendid girl and no mistake, Paul remarked with quiet enthusiasm. And of course, they found some swag on her, Bill continued. And she got 18 months for burglary and housebreaking. She wouldn't have got so much, only it wasn't a first conviction, see? She had spent six months in a reformatory before she was 14 for helping me in a little bit of business, and then another year when she was 16. But all the same, if any of us had been caught that time, each with an automatic in our hip pocket, it would have been 14 years for us. Jim was collared for the army and got killed a month later, and the kid got 18 months. But after all, what's that in life when you're young? And we shouldn't have had the letters, one of the others remarked sententiously. Oh, I, the letters, Kelts rejoined with a light laugh. They were the principal swag, and we got them all right. We sold them to Sir Simeon Goldstein for 100,000 pounds, and cheap at the price. He daren't prosecute, and declared that the swag which was found in the kids' pockets were all that was stolen from him that night. He never said anything about the safe having been tampered with. Of course not. On the contrary, he was in a mortal funk that the police should get one of us before he had completed the transaction 
bought the letters and paid over the money, which he had to do bit by bit, so as not to arouse his banker's suspicions. And even now, we've kept one letter back in case he should think of doing the dirty on us. And we've got the money, Bill concluded, once more striking the table with the palm of his hand so that glasses and mugs rattled in chorus. Ten thousand solid pounds each of us, six men, and forty thousand I've got put by for the kid, but jolly well she deserves it too. But for her, where would we all be, I'd like to know. He took a long drink. The story had been told, and Paul still hung, quietly enthusiastic upon his lips. The others continued to smoke in silence. Each appeared buried in his own thoughts. What's the girl doing now? Paul asked for a while. I left her, Bill replied, just playing with her jewelry. I got her some pearls, you know, and diamond earrings from that place in Bond Street. None of you mates wanted to join me in that game, but I made a good haul all the same. I wanted the kid to have some nice things when she came out, and women love that sort of thing. She hardly looked at the draft I gave her for 40,000 quid. Paul gave a prolonged whistle. 40,000, he exclaimed. Jerusalem. Price of 18 months in quad, Bill reported curtly, and keeping us out of it. Cheap, I call it. And so do I, one of the others asserted emphatically. Apparently it was the general opinion. But for the kid, they could not have got that pretty little bit of blackmail going with Sir Simeon Goldstein. Most of them would be doing their 14 years penal servitude instead. Blackmailers, forgers, thieves, potential murderers probably, but they weren't going to do the dirty on the kid over the money. The conversation now drifted away from the main subject. Only Paul remained thoughtful. He had never come across anything of the sort in all his life. But the others soon broke in on his meditations. He was a new recruit, admitted into this little army of international, not altogether uneducated criminals by reason of his connection with some of those wealthy Russians who had managed to get away from their country with most of their valuables. Plans, therefore, had to be made whereby Paul's knowledge and connections could most profitably be utilized. Thus the evening wore on. Bill was the first to break up the party. I was up early this morning, he remarked with a grin, and want to go bye-byes. It was about a quarter of an hour before closing time. Arrangements were made for meeting the next day, after which Bill made his way back to his home in Pearson Street, 
where he might still have the chance of giving the kid a goodnight kiss before she went to sleep. Bill gave a sudden sigh of content. It was nice having the kid home again. We had no idea how he would miss her when she went. The others sat on smoking until the barman came to warn them he was putting up the shutters. Closing time, gentlemen. They all turned out into the street and walked away together for a little distance until they felt no longer disturbed by either the lights of the bishop's apron or by that of one of the rare street lamps. In the gloom, they came to a halt, continued and interrupted discussion for a minute or two, and were just nodding curt goodnights to one another when Kilt suddenly exclaimed, Hello, here's Bill back again. What on earth? ejaculated one of the others. No wonder the rest of the sentence died unuttered in his throat. Bill came running down the street, hatless, his arms waving, his loose hair flying about his face. He fell like a dead weight against Kilts, who had to stand firm, or he would have fallen under the impact and the pair of them would have rolled over in the mud. My God, Bill cried hoarsely. The kid. A shower of anxious queries and a vigorous shaking from Kilts brought him out of his state of semi-consciousness. She's gone. Gone, Kilts exclaimed. Nonsense. I tell you she's gone, Bill retorted with a rough oath. Left me a letter to say she'd gone. With a hand that shook like a tree in a gale, he fumbled in his pocket and brought out a crumpled scrap of paper. Let's see it, Paul said, and took the paper out of Bill's trembling hand. Not here. Come to my place, Bill murmured, suddenly sobered at the sight of a passerby who had eyed the group with an obvious air of suspicion. The advice was sound. They did not look the sort of men whom any Bobby would pass unconcernedly by, and though this quarter of Yalminster is lonely enough and dark enough to suit any nightbird, there were occasional belated pedestrians who might prove in the way, as well as a point policeman not two hundred yards away. Anyway, they all decided to follow Bill's advice and adjourned to his place, there to hear the details of this unexpected adventure. They parted company, and each going his own way, they met again ten minutes later in the basement of the house in Pearson Street, for they had so heartily welcomed the kid that very morning. As soon as they were all assembled, Bill spread the paper in front of him on the table and with his moist palm smoothed out the creases. This is what she says, he began. Then he read out the contents of the letter. 
I'm going away for a bit, Father. I feel I couldn't stand the life here. Not just yet. I want to get out of it all. Be free and lead my own life for a while. Don't try to find me. If you leave me quite alone, I'll come back to you someday. Probably very soon. As I dare say, I shall get as sick of my new life as I am of the old. But if you try to get me back before I am ready for you, then I'll never come. So leave me alone. And like Bo Peepshi, I'll come home all right. I am your dutiful and loving daughter. There now, Bill said when he finished reading. What do you think of that? Has she got any money? queried the practical Celts. She's got the draft, hasn't she? Bill retorted curtly. Draft, put in Paul with a slight uplift of his straight dark brows. On a banker in Amsterdam, Bill replied. Forty thousand pounds. I gave it to her today. And the pearls and the diamonds. She took away the lot. You could wire to the bank in Amsterdam and stop payment of the draft until you come. She'd have to wait then. Yes, nodded one or two of the others. You could do that. I could, Bill remarked curtly. Slowly, deliberately, he smoothed and folded the fateful letter and slipped it into his breast pocket. Then only he said quietly, But I won't. You won't, Paul exclaimed. But surely you want her back. I do. God knows I do. But I won't do the dirty on her again. Not about the money. If the kid wants to have her fling with it, let her. She'll come home one day, when she's sick of it all. I'll let her have her fling. We've done the dirty on her once. I won't do it again. She'll be alright. And one day, perhaps, she'll come home. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.